Hey. Oh, I'll try that one next time. That worked. All right. It's good to see you guys this evening. Our young people, you can head with Pastor Dave to children's worship. The rest of us, you can grab a Bible. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3 this evening. Uh, so excited to spend some time worshiping the Lord together in His Word. Uh, what an awesome time. I always, always get excited about uh, the shift in the Christmas music uh, here on the weekends. It's kind of that little change in flavor, different, different uh, from what we do the rest of the year, and kind of signifies, and, and honestly, from, from a church standpoint, we, we do less in a typical year uh, in regards to Advent, as most churches do structurally and organizationally. Uh, and what we don't want is for that to uh, leave us not really considering, thinking, and remembering uh, the glorious truth that we celebrate in this month and just kind of remember throughout the whole month the coming of Jesus as birth right? That's uh, what Advent means. It's coming. And so Jesus uh, about to be born in Bethlehem, the anticipation of that, uh, that we look to a Savior that was the hinge, the turning point, the change in all of human history, that we serve a God who keeps his promises, that for thousands of years prior to him, he had made the promise to his people that he was coming to deliver us from our sin, to save the people from our sins. And so in that we have Jesus. And so as we look back and they look forward that all of it comes to the birth of Christ who would come and eventually die on a cross. And so praise the Lord for that. Uh, We're excited about that. Uh, And want to continue in our preaching series through the book of Peter, uh, which is really a testament to the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, even in times that are difficult and painful. Uh, we said that one of the major theses in the book of Peter, and the one that we're really kind of uh, centered and zoomed in on as we work through it, is that uh, though we live in this world where we will face distress and trial at times, that we can be a people who would greatly rejoice as we endure said stress and trial. That the things of this world circumstantially that would be difficult for us ought not steal our hope and it ought not steal our joy because ultimately we find our value in Christ. And so uh, we've kind of walked through that over the course of several weeks now uh, and gotten ourselves to uh, an applicational section of this uh, where Peter is really walking out what it looks like to be a people who are uh, out of chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, uh, abstaining from the fleshly us which war against our soul and keeping our behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that they would glorify God in the day of visitation. And so he's saying, hey, listen, you look upon all of these difficult things and you remember your position in Christ, that you are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, and out of this that it would compel us to be a people who are living lives of holiness and excellent behavior motivated by a glory to God in his return. And so from this, 
uh, we've said that over the last couple weeks and into this week, uh, we would look at what Peter says we ought to do with that. And so uh, the primary word that we began to talk about last week, and really I warned you, was going to bring up and bring some rise to some controversy, most of which is going to be dealt with this week, uh, is that we would be a people who submit. And so uh, we're going to pray, and then we're going to read 1 Peter, the first few verses of chapter 3, and look at his uh, command that we as believers be a people of submission in the context of marriage relationships, and talk about what that means and why that might be a sensitive issue for us in our day and age and context. Talk about it and what that looks like in a biblical sense. Maybe guide us in some truth in a, uh, what I think is a polarizing, controversial issue in the world we live in today. All right, so uh, the best thing to do with that is to begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, tackle God's word together. Father, I'm so thankful for you, thankful for the truth, the availability of your word, that, that we might seek you and find you and know truth because you've revealed it to us. Lord, I pray that we would be filled with a sense of gratitude for your grace and your mercy in that. I know I'm so guilty of taking it for granted that I might have your word at my fingertips and yet often neglect it, often don't trust it, often fight back against it. I pray, I pray that your spirit would be moving in such a way in us, your bride, your body, your church, tonight and tomorrow morning, that we would be a people who would listen to your word trust your word that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to perceive that it might impact the way that we live and and maybe there's some adjustments we need to make maybe there are things we need to repent for maybe there's changes that need to happen in our lives maybe um, we need to be encouraged and reaffirmed in what we continue to walk in and maybe uh, it's something entirely different that your spirit convicts in us. But I pray that tonight and tomorrow that uh, you would help me get out of the way and that the words spoken would be uh, in accordance to the truth of your word and that it would lead us and guide us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 3. We're going to read the first uh, seven verses and then uh, I want to bring us back, really pull in some context around it, and then we'll work through some of the things that we might observe in these verses specifically. So, beginning in verse 1, Peter says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word, by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, 
who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So, let's, let's kind of pause here and pull back into a broader sense, because I think that as we read verses like this in the culture that we live in, in the 21st century, there is a tension in them compared to the cultural norms that might be around us. Not only that, but we typically, especially 21st century Americans, are particularly narrow-minded in our context in almost all things, and so uh, we tend to miss the fact that there is an equal and opposite tension in other parts of the world around these same type of passages, uh, just on a far other extreme of what we might consider the tension here in the United States. So let me, let me help you with what I mean by that. Um, in the Christian world, in regards to marriages and marriage relationships, there's primarily two school of thoughts or two uh, competing views that begin to dissect this issue. And I want to kind of deal with this in a broad sense, not just in this specific passage first, and then we'll zoom back in on this passage, but this isn't an isolated text in the scripture speaking to how marriages work together. Uh, let me, let me help you with it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, be subject or submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject or submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is also the head of, his, head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to, is submitted to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water of, with the word. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, he says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Later on in that same passage, he's going to say, However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For the, as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So in this Uh, Over and over and over again, you're going to find in the context of New Testament scriptures a definition of marriage relationship that includes the word subject to or submit to, which is the same word in Greek, in the context of marriage, in particular wives submitting to their husbands, connected to and coupled with always in those contexts, husbands loving or being understanding toward their wives. And so uh, out of this, I want to kind of broaden it out and, and say, okay, what does this mean? Well, to 
oversimplify a really complex issue. And when I say really complex issue, you could fill libraries with the amount of books that are written particularly about what we do with verses like this from a Christian viewpoint. Uh, you will find that the streams flow in one of two directions. One uh, is what is labeled egalitarianism. Uh, what that means is that any verse that might kind of lead us, this is, again, an oversimplification. I don't want to uh, defame someone's view in this. Uh, but any verse that would lead us into a viewpoint that one of the two partners in a marriage relationship might hold a greater level of authority or status is contextualized. And ultimately, the two in one relationship bear equal weight, equal responsibility, and equal authority before the Lord egalitarian, right? Equal in their participation together. Uh, the second viewpoint is labeled uh, complementarianism. It's found uh, that though, uh, in, and again, I'm, I'm trying to be as fair to these views in summation as I can, uh, I'm, I'm unapologetically complementarian. And so in that view, uh, I would say even though one of the two is not inferior to the other in the nature of marriage, they hold complementary roles that one and the other don't hold the same role or the same position in the context of marriage, but rather that both have a different role that works together, dovetailing with one another for the sake of a harmonious marriage, equal in the eyes of the Lord, but different in responsibilities and levels of authority. And so in that, uh, here's what you need to understand from a worldly perspective as we consider it as a church. In the context of the United States, uh, present day, a complementarian view of marriage is almost a dirty word. Amen? It's, it's found to be uh, antiquated and problematic in many ways, I think mostly incorrectly because it has a bad interpretation of what that view actually entails, which we'll discuss in a little bit as we look through what First Peter's actually going to say about how wives and husbands ought to treat one another. Uh, but in it, says that it lacks a certain uh, tact and progressive truth as the reality that we might observe it is. Now, what's really ironic about this is if you move out of the Western context of 21st century United States, uh, you would find that an egalitarian view of marriage is radically horrendous in many parts of the world. In fact, uh, the very idea that you would treat the two genders on the same playing field uh, is horrid and against many things culturally in wide vast parts of the world. Again, I think incorrectly because most of that has a view of dominance and inferiority towards women and a disrespect of women that rules the day in massive parts of the Middle East and continents all across the world where this is the case. And so in this, the encouragement from me as we begin to really dissect the scripture, especially when you look at some of these passages, is that we would remember that ultimately we bear our responsibility and we derive our truth and the authority of our lives from the scripture, not the ever-changing opinion of the world around us. Amen? Be because here's, here's what I can promise you. The ever-changing 
opinion of the world around us in regards to especially social issues in the scriptures is going to change. That's what ever-changing means, in case you didn't know. Uh, out of that, what, what I encourage you to go back to is that we would continue to be a people who recognize and understand the scripture and try to interpret it truly in the context that God has for us, uh, knowing that socially, contexts change quickly and consistently throughout time because said passage some 70 to 80 years ago would have been interpreted far differently in our culture than it would be today uh, and it would have been something that we would have navigated through and pointed some things out to and it would have found some extremism in an entirely different direction than it might find in today's context. All right, So out of that Here's, here's what I want to do, is taking this context and taking these multiple passages that deal with this word in particular to be subject to or submit to and talk about what it means and what Peter's meaning to get at, again, outside of our context and shedding some light on his context 2,000 years ago, but knowing that he didn't mean it to stay there either, but rather that in principle what he's encouraging both wives and later husbands to do is applicable to all mankind who are submitted to Christ throughout the history of the world and continuing until the day that Christ returns. All right, so in order to do that, let's, let's go back to chapter 3 verse 1 and note what it says here, all right? In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. Now, here's the first question. What does the Bible mean when it says, you wives be submissive to your own husbands? Well, here's how we defined that word last week. We said submission is a voluntary yielding of your will in humility, brought on by Christ, not a position of inferiority, right? Submission is a laying down, a yielding of your will because of your position in Christ, not because you are inferior to the one you're submitting to. In fact, he begins chapter 3 with this phrase that gets ignored most of the time in a passage like this, in the same way. He's just talked for an entire half chapter about what submission looks like in two other contexts that we looked at last week. In particular, we looked at what it means as a believer to be submitted to governing authorities. Get this, even unjust and wrong and corrupt governing authorities. He says that we would be a people who would yield our will and our desires for the sake of the glory of God in those contexts. Now, we know that there are times, we looked at it last week, where we're going to have to navigate in wisdom a difficult time as to whether or not a corrupt governing authority is inhibiting us from truly worshiping or glorifying God, or if we just don't like it because it just bugs us that there would be a corrupt or unjust authority over top of us, right? Everybody has an okay time submitting to a boss, submitting to an authority, submitting to a leader who we really respect and we really trust and we really think is great, but that dumb guy that is in front of you, ahead of you, over you, putting authority above you, not so easy to submit to, right? Teenagers, just kidding. Uh, out of this, we said that submission then was a recognition of us yielding as what Peter says in chapter 2, free men, free people. 
that we have the ability to not yield, but rather that submission would be us giving away our will, get this, for the sake of Christ. Here's, here's why you do it. You submit in the New Testament, this is noted again and again and again, as a way of glorifying God. And Peter's major point in this is that when we submit, we do so because by doing so, it recognizes in corrupt, broken, and wrong earthly circumstances that nothing in this world could pull us away from the infallible hope that is in Jesus Christ. That's what all of chapter 2 was about. Governing authorities, they can be as broken, as corrupt, as self-centered, as horrid as you could possibly imagine. It does not matter to me because I'm focused on the glory of God and so I'll submit to them because I'm indifferent to how bad things are out there. My hope is in Christ. He even talks about it in the context of slavery. He's not endorsing slavery, but he says, listen, you got a master who doesn't treat you right, who is unreasonable and unjust, you submit to him. Why? Because your hope is not in how well your job goes, it is in Christ. Wives, you've got a husband who's not worth a darn. I know it. I know some, in fact, I think it's every church I've ever been in, it's one of the most common things that I see. Uh, in fact, I think statistically, it is far more likely to be in a church with many faithful women whose husbands are pieces of garbage. Just call it like it is, guys. <laughs> Most of those guys aren't here, I know. What do you do? You submit because my hope is not in my husband. My hope is in Christ. And, and get this. Consistently in Scripture, we as believers are commanded to submit in many contexts that we would never even consider as a recognition of superiority or inferiority. Uh, the only time that gets really pulled out of the context and misinterpreted is in the context of marriage. Uh, let, me, let me show you some examples. Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, the author of Hebrews is going to close up the letter to the church and he's going to say this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. That, that you would submit to those who lead you in the context of the church. Now here's the thing, you, you already know this, right? I'm not above you. I mean, I'm on the stage right now, and so, so I guess logically, physically right now I'm above you but I'm not above you right we're on the same level in fact we talked about it just a few weeks ago Peter makes this clear he says that we believers are a royal priesthood that we are all priests and kings in Christ that if you have been redeemed you stand no closer or more privileged to the Lord than I and no further or less privileged to the Lord than I you don't have any restricted access that I have I don't have the power or authority to forgive your sins I am not anything special I'm just a guy here yelling that's it right and so, so in that you submit to leaders. Why? For the sake of your joy and my joy, that that would be something because we have a different level of responsibility. I'm responsible in part for your soul, keeping watch over it. Uh, it says it again uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. 
get this, we read Ephesians 5, to 26 in the context of wives being submissive, being submissive to their husbands as Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the wife. Powerful language, not super popular in the culture we live in, and yet the verse right before it in Ephesians 5, 21 says this, and be subject, be submitted to one another in the fear of Christ, that it comes from a place of mutual submission. Not only this, here's the best example of how we might know this is not a recognition of an f- inferiority, but is a recognition of a yielding for the sake of complementing one another in relationship, which ultimately is what's going to glorify God. Uh, Luke 2.51 talks about Jesus and his submission to his parents. It says that he went down with them and came to Nazareth. Now, you remember, Jesus is like a preteen at this time. Uh, they had gone to Jerusalem, and they couldn't find him. Now, that's like, <laughs> I'm not like a great parent, but like you take your kid to like a foreign city, and then you just lose them. Come on, that's like C minus. Anybody want to make like a confession right now, right? Uh, I, I mean, I've left my kids places before. Uh, just not like at Disney World. And so uh, they go to Jerusalem. They can't find Jesus. They, in fact, they've left the city. They're walking back, and, and they start to talk to each other. Where is that kid, right? They go back. They find that he's in the temple. And what's he doing? He's reasoning with the religious leaders, and they're impressed by his wisdom, his understanding of the scriptures at that age. Why? Because he's the sinless son of God, right? Like, He's probably going to be pretty good at that. Uh, and then they come and get him and bring him back. And here's what it says. He went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. Submitted to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. That Again, it was a posture of humility. A yielding of his will. Not an inferiority to them. He's the deity in flesh. Jesus. Right, And so uh, the first thing I think we need most importantly as we look at this, says, likewise you wives submit to your own husbands, is that you recognize that this is a surrendering of your self-will for the sake of God's will in your life. Now, secondly, look at how this is to be done and why this matters, right? So that even, in any, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So in this, Peter says the purpose of your submission is not because you aren't good enough to be on an equal playing field with your husband. The purpose is that by your behavior, by your deeds, by your submission, you might win them to Christ rather than by your persuasive words. Now, ladies, I'm, I'm going to say this. I, I kind of went back and forth throughout the week as to whether or not this needed to be said. I think it does. Um, not always, but frequently. I think that the female heart and leaning and intention is going to want to try to speak, persuade, convince, and if, if we're going to use the negative word, I'm just going to throw it out, nag into some, some type of position for your husband that's going to be the position that you want him to be in. 
most of the time. I know some of you maybe don't operate in such a fashion, but that's my interactions frequently. I think Peter's looking at it in a, in a most and stereotypical and generality type of viewpoint. We're going to see that again in a verse a little bit later here in just a second. Uh, but in this, I think his encouragement is by your yielding, by your submission, your behavior supersedes your words and is a more powerful tool of persuasion to surrender and spiritual growth in your husband than your words would ever be on their own. That's why he's going to go on and say, your adornment must not be merely external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. Uh, those were all things in the Roman Empire that would signify a great deal of uh, wealth, beauty, and tr uh, social capital, if you will. Uh, extravagant braids were very popular. Uh, I, I like the word merely in there, right, because it it doesn't mean that you show up in your Walmart clothes all the time uh, and just don't take care of yourself at all. That's not, that's not what he's getting at, right? Like you don't, you don't get points by being unkempt, but rather he's saying if you're going to place your value in your physical appearance, you're going to miss it because ultimately what happens when we find ourselves placing our value in physical appearance? You become objectified. Over and over again, that's what happens. And, and so rather than seeing you as a soul to be treasured, you see uh, you become an object to be looked at and treated with disrespect. And so Peter, looking for the soul in this, says don't let it merely be about that, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For, for in this way... Uh, Former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves and being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. That it would be a posture of humility, not a posture of inferiority or a posture of fear, right? That... Again, and, and that's going to get to, we're going to talk about husbands in just a second here, but it's going to transition us into the truth that this, again, was a command to you wives, you ladies, not to husbands to enforce into their wives, right? That it wouldn't be a position of fear brought on, needed submission. That's not actual real submission by a biblical sense because it doesn't involve yielding, it involves suppressing. Now, one more thing before we work on uh, the guys, because that's the stuff that I like and the people I like to yell at. Here's, here's the thing. If we were to say, and, and I think this is what we're trying to get across, that in the context of a biblical marriage, and, and I'm going to add to this, because I know that some of you don't have a biblical marriage, um, especially ladies, you, you have a non-biblical marriage because you have the context that Peter's talking about, a, a spouse that doesn't obey the word, that you would yield not as a position of less than or inferior to, but as a position of God-glorifying, Christ-honoring subjection, noting that he is your hope, not your husband, uh, then you also have to deal with what comes up in verse 7 as he talks to husbands, that you would live with your wives in an understanding way, and then he notes this. 
as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. I mean, man. Let me... Let me unfold what I think Peter's getting at here. Um, I think there's two things that he means by this this term weaker. One, again, I think think speaking in generalities and stereotypes, he's speaking physically. That most of the time, wives are physically weaker than their stronger counterpart husband. Right? I open the pickle jars at my house. Now, I know I am not a particularly strong man. Uh, you know, real heavy wind kind of scares me. I don't know if I can stand in it. Uh, just not going to be like the symbol of strength in physical masculinity. Uh, and I know that. And I also know that that means on occasions I walk into a room and encounter a whole bunch of women who I'm like, oh, yeah, that person would beat me up. All right? Generally speaking, I I think that's the first implication of what he means, is physical. I think the second implication is not general. It is conclusively speaking, in Peter's context, in Peter's day, socially, women were deeply devalued and weaker than men. In, In the Roman Empire, a woman was virtually worthless in comparison to a man. And so uh, what's, what's ironic about people who think a uh, complementarian view of Scripture is, is really antiquated is uh, in the Roman Empire, what Peter says is deeply progressive. Uh, and so out of this, uh, what he's looking at is a culture where women were not able to leave or divorce their husband in any context to continue on in any sort of rights as a human being uh, after said leaving, Right? In the, in the opposite respect, though, a husband in the Roman Empire could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever and owed her nothing at all. When he was done, he could be done. And that was it. There's no, there's no alimony. There's no child support. There's no custody battle. There's no have to take care of this woman. Nothing. And what compounds that is only men were able to vote. Only men were able to testify. Only men were able to own property. And so massively one-sided in the Roman Empire, males dominated all things social. And so a woman who had a husband who did not take care of her was as weak of an individual as anyone in that society. It's why the Bible consistently calls for so much generosity and hospitality to be done to widows and to orphans. Right? Because women, in particularly widowed women or women whose husbands had left, were as socially weak as anyone in that culture. And so I think Peter's looking at this and not saying intellectually weak and not saying uh, inferior in any capacity or less important to God. He's looking at it and going, let's, let's just call the culture what it is, that, that men are valuable and women weren't. And so then in this, think about that as he says this in verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, remember we've established this way, the whole sermon here, that we would be a people who yield our will for the sake of others, that you would live with your wives in an understanding way, 
as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. That he looks at the men, he looks at uh, husbands and go, listen, you would live with your wife in an understanding way, in the same way. Here's, here's what that means, men. If you, you find yourself, like me, uh, with this understanding correctly in Scripture, you can argue with me, but you can be wrong if you want to, uh, in this as a complementarian that you go, hey, there's, there's levels and there's authority that is bestowed upon or given to a man in a marriage relationship and a woman complements that authority. And so in this, uh, we operate in that fashion. Uh, I, I hope that in some, sometime in 2021, this is kind of a sidebar, but sometime in 2021, I hope to do a workshop on marriages and families. We're going to spend like four hours just really hammering out what biblical marriage looks like. Uh, we'll see if we're able to get that on the schedule, but we can kind of unfold what those things are. But in it, if you husband see that, here's what Peter's reminder and command is to you. It doesn't mean that you get a pass on submission. It doesn't mean that you get a pass on yielding your will. In the same way, you would live in an understanding way. Here's, here's how it ought to work in my household and yours. That any opportunity that I can yield what is my will or my desire or my longing for the sake of my wife, I ought to. And so should she. And, and when neither of us feel convinced that that would be the case, what she's committed to and what we have committed to is that I'm going to make the call on that one. And so Peter says that, that we would live in an understanding way. And then he reiterates again and again and again and again what he said all throughout this that it's, it's not a position of inferiority, but rather it's a recognition of Christ's superiority in our relationships in all contexts. That she is a fellow heir of the grace of life. And then he reminds that uh, if you are going to neglect this, you might find that your prayers are hindered. Uh, which is, is one of the interesting promises in the scripture. Uh, one of the only times in the scripture it's going to say uh, that your prayer life might be broken because your relationship with your wife is not in harmony with God's will for your relationship with your wife. And so out of all of this, here's, here's my question. So, so how do we summarize then what a biblical marriage looks like according to Peter here in Peter 3? Well, we don't have to guess too much, uh, fortunately. Look at verse 8. He starts it this way. To sum up, that's a good hint that we're getting a summary. All right. To sum up, all of you, and now he's going to give us a list of things that we ought to do if we're going to live in a God-glorifying manner with one another. Be harmonious. Sympathetic. Brotherly kind-hearted and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. 
What does it look like to be a people who submit ourselves? As, as we've now looked over the past couple of weeks, submitted to uh, human institutions and authorities, submitted to those who are in leadership, submitted in our own relational stances, even when they're not correct, even when they're not God-glorifying, even when they're not God-honoring, that we would be. What does it look like? Well, it looks like we're a people who are harmonious with one another, that we're submitting to not spend our time fighting with one another, that we're sympathetic to one another, that we're submitted to understanding one another, that we're brotherly, that we're submitting to care more about others than we do our own selves, that it would make us kind-hearted and humble in spirit and not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, that we would be a people who look first to give blessing to others. Why? Because you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. What's that blessing? Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Why do you do that? Because we're called to receive the blessing that is the gospel of Jesus Christ sealed in the Holy Spirit through faith. That he came, that in, in a week we're going to celebrate in this Christmas season that Jesus came to die, to hang on a tree that we might be saved, that we might receive the blessing of salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit through faith. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, give us a posture of humility. Make us a people who submit ourselves to you. That, that by the power of your spirit working in us and through us, that we wouldn't insist on our will or our way, but rather that we would yield, desiring above all things, your will to be done in our lives. Your way to go forth through us. I know my flesh is weak in that it desires to glorify self. And so, so I pray that it would be submitted to your spirit even in my own life and, and that your spirit would reign in me as it does in the context of your whole church that we would be a people who are walking by faith through the gift, the blessing of your Holy Spirit. Let us trust in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand? Let's sing one more.